government should not take on all of the burden of driving ethical use of data. But there is a role in terms of regulation and policy that government should have. But then we should also push some of that burden onto the communities, or rather the community members in our respective regions, whether it's the UK, whether it's US, whether it's Asia, should stand up and also take its rightful place in this conversation and sort of lead thinking on how to be more ethical. Take out your phone, go on, have a look at each app you've tapped today, each browser you've opened, each link you've clicked on, what purchases you made, who you liked or followed and where you went today. Everything we do now leaves a trail. And that raises important questions about privacy. In this sea of data with endless sources of information, meta-tagging and geo-information all around us, how can we apply principles to this data that are robust but also ethical? You're about to meet Dr. Armin Ra Mashariki, the Global Director of the Data Lab at the World Resources Institute. He's also been the Director of the Mayor's Office of Data Analytics in New York, where he used data insights to create public policy and shape responses to crises, including the September 11 terrorist attacks and Hurricane Sandy. So where is the line when it comes to wielding the power of data-driven insight? And when should it be crossed? That's coming up on Directions with me, Stan Grant. Support for this episode comes from the country's leading mapping technology and services provider, Esri Australia. To learn more about how Esri Tech is supporting the world's most progressive leaders, visit esriaustralia.com.au slash trailblaze. Hello, welcome again to Directions Podcast. I'm Stan Grant. Today we're discussing something that none of us can avoid and very much frames so much of our lives, and that is data and the collection of data, how that data is analysed every day from the moment we get up to the moment we go to bed, we leave a little trail of data behind us. And we know that in a world that is increasingly interconnected, how important that can be, both shaping our response to emergencies and also just in being able to plan out our own day. We're speaking to Dr. Armin Ra Mashariki, who have been working for a long time in the area of data analytics and most notably was chief analytics officer at New York City. And you can only imagine what would be involved <laughs> in trying to, to collect data and analyse data in a city of that size. Um, Dr. Mashariki, thank you so much for giving us your time. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. Stan, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is a great topic to talk about. Well, it, it certainly is. Look, it's the, the topic of our age, isn't it? This is an information age, and we're only beginning to see, only beginning to touch the sides of where this might lead us. Let me take it back for you a step. And, and what drove your interest in working in data and, and analyzing data? I, that's, a, that's a great question. I'll start by saying, you know, my background was in computer science. So um, mm -hmm. I was really in algorithmic optimization. But in order to do that well, you needed data. And so I really started to move towards the data space. My career really took off uh, when I was working on my doctorate and I was working in a surgical simulation space and then moved into the bioinformatics space. And so that's where I really cut my teeth on data was understanding that more data about us as human beings in a biological way would help us to really cure 
diseases, right? And so I really understood the, mm. how the potential of data in saving lives, what that really looked like. And I was at Johns Hopkins as a research scientist for about six to eight years. Then I left to go to the public sector uh, and I joined the Obama administration as a White House fellow and then later as a chief technology officer of a federal agency. And then again, I mean, you just, you, you can imagine the mounds and mounds of data that exists that's being stored by the federal government. The Obama administration was at the precipice of beginning to understand exactly what mm -hmm. all of this data that we've been storing for decades upon decades and the possibilities. So again, my career came up in the possibilities of data. And as you said, where we are now, we're starting to see mm. some successes, right? Uh, we're starting to see where data can have those very big impacts in cities, in the environmental space, in health, in space. And so, you know, I really just kind of rode that wave to be where I'm at today. There's so much to, um, to unpack there, but immediately just in going through how much the government stores, how much information the government has, information about us, but information, you know, gathered from all different walks of life. And I wanted to get to this later, but I think you've opened a window to discuss this now, and that is the question of the ethics. And I know you've written and spoken about this, but it does raise new philosophical questions, ethical questions about how much of our lives we control. How do we approach an ethical response to the collection and the analyzing data? One is I think you have to start by acknowledging that the problem that we're facing now, these ethical dilemmas and these challenges, challenges now just didn't start in the age of big data. When you look at what the federal government did, the federal government of the United States with respect to an effort called uh, the Tuskegee experiment, where they were injecting black men and women with syphilis in order to test them. And they were using mm. that data to understand how to ultimately build out remedies and so on and so forth. But then this is a big deal. It's been written about ad nauseum. And it was one of those big pieces where you peeled off and you said, hey, the government has had challenges and has consistently had challenges with respects to ethical use of their power. Right. Mm. And so one, you have to start there. You have to understand that this is decades upon decades where this has been happening. The Tuskegee experiment only ended in the early 70s, which is not so far away, right? I, when, when you hear of governments injecting people with diseases purposefully just to mm. test them, you say, well, that had to have happened uh, millennia ago. So one, we have to be diligent and concerned Right. And so no matter who is in the administration, who's leading the administration, what government it is, it does not matter. Um, as citizens, we should always start from a space of concern because we understand that this has been happening. And so we need to be more deliberate about challenging it. Two is I think government has to understand its role in managing mm -hmm. this. Government should not take on all of the burden of driving ethical use of data. But there is a role in terms of regulation and policy that government uh, should have. But then we should also push some of that burden onto the communities or rather the community members in our respective regions, whether it's the UK, whether it's US, whether it's Asia, should stand up and also take its rightful place in this conversation and own some of uh, sort of lead thinking on how to be more ethical 
right? And so government and community and the people whose data it is should partner well on this. You've just raised so much there. I mean, even that experiment alone, not widely known, it raises questions about communities and targeting communities and communities that may be more vulnerable or communities that don't have the same power, don't have sovereignty. In fact, we're talking about really sovereignty over your own lives, aren't we? Absolutely. And, and there's two sides to that coin, right? So there is the idea that your data, your sense of privacy doesn't belong to you. Someone else owns that, right? There's that part that there's data being generated about you that's being used not necessarily on your behalf. And you have no idea how and where it's being used. And then there's the other side, which is you as a community member being able to have access to data. And that's where this concept of open data comes into play. So there's mm. the side that says, hey, we need to be very careful about the data that we're aggregating, that we're storing, and that we're making available. Then there's the other side, which is the open data movement that says, actually, you know, transparency is one way to move against uh, unethical use of data, unethical use of anything, whether it's unethical use of force, unethical use of resources, mm. transparency, opening that data up, making it available to people within communities, making it available to uh, uh, leaders and policymakers such that we understand what actually is going on under the hood. How do you approach that as someone who is a practitioner and someone who's been in the position of leadership as well and knowing that this can be very treacherous terrain that you're sort of entering into here? How do you approach these ethical questions? The exact answer is carefully, right? One way I would say is that there's a, a book that I like that I've read many times over. It's called To Engineer is Human. It talks about these big structures that we've built as human beings over time and all of the calamities that have happened during the building of those structures, right? The deaths when we built bridges back in the day and so on and so forth. You can imagine with the lack of technology, how many lives perished trying to build some of these gargantuan structures. And it said, but if we were afraid of all of the bad things that can happen, imagine what society would look like in terms of our infrastructure, in terms of the structures that we would have ultimately went ahead and built. So I think there are always, and I'm gonna be very careful how I say this, I think there are always gonna be challenges. There are always gonna be concerns, mm. impediments and roadblocks. And the way I think about it is we have to be facing towards the direction of progress, which is more data to be more useful. We have to be facing towards the direction of precision, which is not having to pull in everybody's data to figure out an answer to a question. We have to be more precise such that we don't have mm -hmm. to use a lot of data. So we should be moving in the direction of progress, but understand that this will not succeed without uh, bumping up against some ethical challenges, some technical challenges, some humanistic challenges. There's gonna be those roadblocks. There's gonna be those impediments. There are going to be people who are going to push back. Your work in New York City, of course, is fascinating. And you are dealing with a big population and a diverse population in so many ways, you know, geographically, ethnically, racially, along sort of economic, socioeconomic lines as well. When you came 
to that job, there were some big things you had to look at. Um, there was the hangover from the 9-11 terrorist attacks right. and looking at where some of the mistakes may have been made or faults in the system or things you could do better. And then, of course, you had to deal with what was can be seen now in retrospect as perhaps even a trial run for COVID, and that was an outbreak of Legionnaires' disease. Let me go to the first thing with 9-11. When you come in there, it's been some years since, the, since that attack, but where did you go to work in that? Because that raised a lot of questions around data and the collection of data, and of course, the response to terrorism more broadly has raised ethical issues around the collection of data, access to people's private information. So how did you approach looking at that? Where were some of the the areas that you thought needed to change, needed to fix, given, of course, the devastating impact that those attacks had on the city. Let me actually rephrase the question, if you don't mind. I think it's a well-put question. Mm. Let me add something to it, rather. Actually, when I came in in 2014, Hurricane Sandy and the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy was on everyone's mind. And our response to Hurricane Sandy, more, more specific, our data-focused response to Hurricane Sandy. So this is one of the first times we had a trial run of how do we share data? There were big conversations around the Office of Emergency Management getting calls about down power lines and down trees and cars in the middle of mm -hmm. the road and all sorts of other emergencies. And how do we bring all of this data together, uh, integrate it, uh, geolocate that data, and then begin to effectively send what is essentially pared down force like you said, there's so many people and there's so much space in New York City, there's not enough city employees that you can send out. Uh, you can't send mm. them all out at the same time. So you have to prioritize. We did a okay, a halfway decent, uh, and I'm being generous here, job there. Uh, the Bloomberg administration essentially wrote an after action report and said, uh, the next person that comes in here that leads up data has to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G and has to do it 10 times better. And so we sort of had a playbook because the idea was that it wasn't, it wasn't so much as a playbook that was handed off to us. It was an uh, independent after action report that mentioned what this mayor's office of data analytics would need to do and need to stand up in case of the next emergency. So one, I technically, I wouldn't call it a playbook in that it was easy to follow, but using that after action report, I knew where to lead. Now I'll tie this into 9-11. Because remember, 9-11 mm. was about not, not being able to, when you, when you read the 9-11 commission, that report, it talked about us not being able to connect the dots from federal to state to local. And to work collaboratively, because you've spoken about collaborative data, you know, how you work collaboratively. And that was a big failing, wasn't it? If you want to identify progress in 9-11, it just didn't exist. It just did not exist, mm. right? During Sandy, you had a more collaborative effort, but no one understood what to do with the data. Everyone, you still, you had a collaborative effort on non-data things, but when it came to data, no one knew how to talk to each other. No one knew how to make their data connect or be interoperable. I'll just add one more thing, again, to the 9-11 note. So after 9-11, the federal government, Department of Homeland Security, created this standard called NEAM, National Information Exchange Model. It was a technical protocol a data protocol that said, if everyone adheres to this data protocol, then you should be able to share and integrate your data fairly easily. So we, we began to bring New York City. Remember, I was in the federal government before I came to New York City. So I yeah. brought that standard 
uh, yeah. to New York City. But that standard was a, a, a direct result of the 9-11 Commission that said, hey, we just don't, we didn't know how to share data and collaborate. So we use that as our backbone such that when Legionnaires happened, we had that capability and we brought it to bear. That's fascinating because it is such an iterative process. And unfortunately, you're having to respond to crises. You're learning on the job. You are looking at new ways of doing things in real time with real time consequences. And it raises another issue that I, I want to come to our hypothetical in a moment where I think we'll probably draw on all of that experience and apply it to that. But the final piece I'd like to talk about before we get to the hypothetical is leadership itself. And to the extent that you, as a relatively young man, and you know, I'm, I'm pushing up against 60 now, so if I, I keep talking to people who are incredibly accomplished and much younger than me, which is starting <laughs> to give me a bit of a complex. But, um, but, but as someone of, you know, relatively young who has, has been in positions of real leadership and authority, it raises questions there about how you approach leadership. Is there a generational shift here? You've mentioned collaboration. Um, you've mentioned ethical questions that perhaps weren't being asked earlier. So as a leader, how do you approach something like this? You know, one of my core leadership uh, concepts that I follow at all times is, one, you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you. Uh, because when you bring people who are smarter than you about these things, uh, about data, uh, about the city, you bring them to the table. My job is, as a leader is not to do everyone's job better than them. My job is to just move things out of the way mm. so they can do their jobs uh, the way that they want to do their jobs. So that's more tactical. I think more theoretical, the way that I think about leadership is that, especially from my time in New York City, is that uh, there are known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Yes. And I bring that up to say that the known knowns and the known unknowns, there are people who have been working on those, who have been wrapping their heads around those uh, that work in New York City. They've been doing that for decades. Understand the known knowns. I, we know that these are the challenges. Yeah. We know how to respond to those. The known unknowns. Well, we know we can, this is where we might see some variance and some, some concerns and so on and so forth, but we also have these mechanisms to respond to. As a leader, your job is to be out in front and be prepared and be as ready as you can for the unknown unknowns. You need to be the first person mm -hmm. out in front. When that thing that you didn't know was gonna happen happens, everyone is gonna pause, they're gonna have this terrified look on their face and they're gonna look to you. <laughs> if you have that same terrified look on your face, it's done, right? And so as a leader, your job is really to be prepared to move uh, on the unknown unknowns. I want to just take a quick minute to let you know, if you'd like to learn more about some of the incredible projects Armin has worked on with groups like the World Resources Institute and the City of New York, get along to our website at directionspodcast.com.au. Take a look at the video on data drills, which is like a fire drill, but for your data, absolutely fascinating stuff. There's also a link to a free trial of the Esri software Armin uses up there too. Well, Armin, you have opened perfectly the segue to get into our hypothetical. And I don't know what your face looked like when you saw the reality of <laughs> COVID-19, but you know, most of us were just, and talking about unknown unknowns, we knew that there was a potential for a virus like this. We'd had trial runs, there was SARS. So I wanted to go through the hypothetical now. 
COVID-19 hits New York City um, early and hit hard. We know that. The city experienced an alarming rate of death from the pandemic. We saw the impact it had on the economy. So COVID-19 is now under control. Some vaccines are being distributed. But we know that these dark days are far from over. There is second and there are third waves and they mutate. And then there are, of course, the the ongoing hardships as a result of, of having to battle COVID. Shootings are on the rise. Some New Yorkers we know are getting out of the city area and they're going to the suburbs. The city is now looking to rebuild the economy. Now, you've received a call from the mayor, your previous employer, tasking you now with assessing this situation and providing recommendations for a path forward. So where do you go for an immediate response to this? That's a a fairly non-trivial question to a very uh, intense setup. One, you start with the experts on the ground. There's one thing that you have Mm. to understand about these data teams. These data teams are not the experts on the ground. They are value add, right? They are a capability Mm. to add on top of, to 10X, the capability of the actual true experts on the ground. So one is, if this doesn't exist already, you build a consortium of data leaders across the agencies. So the expectation there is that these agency data leaders have been gathering and managing and cleaning and in, to some extent also identifying insights that are relevant to their mission, their specific mission about the city and about uh, the first wave of COVID. So one is you bring those folks to the table and say, what do we know? Let's benchmark and let's put a reference point on what we know about the past X months and how the city responded and what impact it has had on the city. So you have to always start with a baseline of information. And so you go to the experts on the ground, the agency officials, the agency field operators and so on and so forth. So you bring them to the table, but you don't stop there. A lot of Mm -hmm. external entities uh, always play a role Mm -hmm. in responding to these catastrophes. So whether they're NGOs, nonprofits, they are on the ground and they stay on the ground year round all the time. And so they bring a wealth of information and also, which has been neglected and has been neglected during the COVID recovery, they bring a wealth of data. You bring them to the table. You bring academic institutions to the table. Academic institutions should have already been thinking about some things. They bring a lot of firepower in terms of intellectual uh, stamina to the conversation. So you bring them to the table. Lastly, and this has been the most disappointing part of what I have seen, because this does not happen. You bring the community members uh, to the table, the community members who are the ones Mm -hmm. who have been experiencing this. But you need to bring those people to the table while they can tell their stories uh, in live. You've really anticipated where just where I was going to go. I can see that you've been down this road before. The media has gone out to those people who are most affected. Who has been most affected? Usually the poorest communities and often black communities. So in the middle of coronavirus, we've also had a situation of Black Lives Matter protests um, across the country. These communities, given what you've already outlined, are already really reluctant to participate in any data collection exercise. They don't trust you because of past history and present experience. How do you get trust with the community? If you're asking me 
the scenario is during the emergency and we have not built bridges into those communities prior to the mm. emergency, as a leader, you would have to stand up and say, okay, these are the things that we need to do. We need to identify where we're going to do this correct. We need to identify the question marks in what we're doing, the things that we will have to answer to after the fact uh, and make sure we have our ducks mm -hmm. in a row with regards to answering to that and then move forward. And then after people say, well, the work that you did was great and it was extremely helpful, but some people say that there were policies in place, you used certain health data that you maybe should not have used. Then you have to walk through, here's every risk that we knew we were taking and here's how we mitigated those risks, right? And then yeah. you have to have that, but you have to have that conversation with the community during and after if you have not had that conversation with the community beforehand. And, and given, uh, keep keeping in mind, of course, that we are now in a phase where perhaps the worst is over, but there's also the fear that it could come back. It is a rebuilding phase and you're looking ahead here. We already have a lot of data on hand. We know where the worst hit areas of New York City were. We know which communities endured the worst of COVID and we know where the communities have been hardest hit economically. How do you use mapping as well? you know, the collection of geographic data, spatial technology, to be able to to focus on the areas of greatest need and where you can start to rebuild and where you need to prioritize. I love this conversation uh, around uh, location intelligence. And I love that term, mm. location intelligence, because it's not just about where, but it's around the context of where. The question you have to now answer, and this is the intelligence part of location, now that you know where, there's other pieces of data that bring to context that where to explain to you, well, why did it happen in these areas? Right? Mm -hmm. So once you begin mm -hmm. to answer the question of, so we know it happened in these neighborhoods, we saw outbreaks of COVID that were greater in these neighborhoods, then that's the location part. Then you bring in the intelligence part and then you say, now we understand better we did an analysis and we understand better why that happened. One, you mm -hmm. can mitigate any more communities from suffering from that same fate. You're communicating. You're explaining it to people too. Absolutely. And you're using the data to better explain that. 100%. 100%. Stan, I think the, the seats should be reversed. You, you're answering. Uh, you, 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 you're, <laughs> no, you, believe you, me, giving, you don't want me making the decisions. You're giving me the answer. <laughs> I'll ask the questions. <laughs> <laughs> Location intelligence absolutely is you can be used as a communication tool as well. We're almost out of time, but I wanted to finish just with a couple of observations from you about leadership and what we've even gleaned from this conversation, where we are failing in terms of using data more effectively and providing leadership around that. You've touched on those ethical questions, better communication, prioritizing, using information as a communicative tool and being able to map where areas are most affected or where you can apply the best, the best measures to achieve the best outcomes. But one of the things that strikes me, um, Armin, throughout all of this conversation is that you're always playing catch up, aren't you? I mean, whether it's 9-11 and learning the lessons, whether it's Sandy and learning the lessons, whether it's, it's Legionnaires and learning the lessons, and then COVID and learning the lessons, how do you as a leader get in front rather than having to play catch up? That's a good question. Let's see if I can uh, answer that briefly. I, you know, it, it makes me think about industries like the health industry. O only until we've seen a disease many, 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 many times do we build 
infrastructure and the capability to respond to that disease. I think there's a few like the common cold that we haven't uh, figured out remedies for, right? And it's like, you know, they always say, uh, you go to a hospital, hospital is good at responding to illness. If you go to a hospital and say, hey, I am totally fine, tip top health shape, but I want to know how you guys can help me. There's very little that can be done. Maybe you can go to a dietitian. Maybe you can suggest, you know, hey, add some more broccoli. You know, you can always add broccoli to your diet, right? At least my parents say, <laughs> say as much, right? Um, but I think the question is challenging in that, do we have enough data? Do we know enough yet to be out in front of these things? Or really, are we resigned? And I'm answering your question with a question because I think about this all the time. Are we resigned to sort of being, I always, the analogy I use is the emergency room. Um, the best emergency rooms are the ones that say, I don't know what's coming through that door in the next minute or so, but I tell you what, we've mm -hmm. got every technology, we've got the best doctors, we've got the best infrastructure, we've got the best nurses, we've got everything in place to respond to anything that comes in that door. Right. And that's the position I think cities uh, should be in. And just a final thought from you. On leadership, what's the greatest lesson you have learned or the person you have looked to, the mentor or the experience that you had, which has shaped you as a leader? I would actually say my mom. She was the one who taught me how to program. She worked at IBM for a long time and she taught me how to program. But So I looked towards her um, for a lot of uh uh, intellectual guidance, but I've seen her uh, move gracefully and elegantly in some very tough situations throughout my life from a young person, even literally to now as an adult. So I think a strong leader not only has the remit to respond swiftly and strong to things that happen, but you also have to do it gracefully and respectfully and uh, recognize the power of you know your job and your role so and i've seen my mom do that throughout her life and you know i hope to sort of emulate that type of uh that type of leadership it's a great answer and she would tell you to eat your broccoli as well um, <laughs> it's, <does>. been, <laughs> it's been <laughs> it's been a real pleasure dr masaryk you're a real pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for giving us your time on this uh, on this directions podcast thank you again it's been my pleasure thank you so much dan i really appreciate it it's been an honor That's Armin Ra Mashariki, the Global Director of the Data Lab at the World Resources Institute and a former Chief Analytics Officer for New York City. On the next episode of Directions, as a specialist geologist, Dr. Catherine Sullivan was recruited by NASA to become the first American woman to walk in space in 1984. She was also the first woman to dive to one of the Earth's deepest ocean floors Dr. Sullivan's a scientific and institutional leader named by the BBC as one of the most influential women of 2020. The space age is the first time in human history that you really can say, we can take a snapshot of the entire planet, the distribution of moisture in the entire global atmosphere, essentially now. Temperature on the ocean surface, everywhere on the planet, essentially now. That's thanks to satellites. And that ability to get that essentially instantaneous snapshot, this is the state of the planet right now, 
Those are the data that let you run computer models that allow you to forecast or predict ahead. Dr. Catherine Sullivan coming up on the next episode of Directions. This is a Bowstead Geospatial Technologies production. This episode was narrated by me, Stan Grant, and Dr. Armin Ra Masariki. Sound engineered by Neely Media and Deadset Studios, with editing support from Kim Douglas and Sydney Podcast Studios. Artwork by Superscript, and our executive producers are Alicia Kuparitsis and Raquel Jackson. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating, leave a review, and be sure to tell your friends. Follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also download a free trial of Esri software. Check out our show notes and access other resources at directionspodcast.com.au. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Esri Australia, its subsidiaries or partners. Hypothetical scenarios presented as part of this episode are purely fictional, and while they may draw on current issues, they do not depict the actions, values or beliefs of any specific individual and or organisation. And finally, this production would not be possible without the support of Esri Australia.